Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening and thank you for being with us on ADH. I am Alan Jones. It has been a bit of a grim day. I attended the Requiem Mass for my dear friend, Helena Carr. The Labor Party were out in force, ex-Prime Ministers, Premiers, the lot, but the grieving husband, the longest continuously serving Premier in the history of New South Wales, Bob Carr stole the show in front of more than 600 mourners. Extraordinary scenes there were, I have to say. Anyway, he eulogised about Helena, whom he always referred to as H. They had been married for 50 years and he said that he wanted to, quote, deliver a final message to my little friend. And he said, what happened on October 26 is still very raw. Well, as I told you last week, they had been to the opera in Vienna. They came home, Helena complained of back pain and she collapsed in Bob's arms and she was gone at that point a brain aneurysm. Today, Bob Carr said, what happened on October 26 is still very raw, but in a city, he said, where I've raised my voice on so many causes over so many years, I couldn't say no to this one. He said, we farewell a Chinese Indian girl, educated by Irish nuns, drawn to Australia, recruited improbably to Australian public life while she ran a business creating thousands of jobs in Australian manufacturing, unquote. Her husband, Bob, said her very spirit lives today. The eyes, the smile we recall so easily urge us to joyfulness in a happy cosmos. H, he said, we gifted one another that lovely last day in Vienna on October 26, at peace in a 50-year partnership. He said, accepting time would not be ours forever happy just to see the other one happy. That was where our long journey had taken us to this calmness and wisdom and where it ended so suddenly, cut off so cruelly as your co-conspirator in this half century collaboration. I thank you. I thank you, my lucky star. He said, farewell, my little friend, and may flights of angels see thee to thy rest, unquote. It's beautiful language about a beautiful woman. That's the picture that was on front of the service, order of service today. Delivered it was by the resonating voice of the former Premier, a floral display of buttercup yellow roses and dahlias adorned the urn holding Helena's ashes. On either side, portraits from the various stages of her life showcased the joy that they shared together. Well, Anthony Albanese was to speak at the Requiem Mass for Helena Carr. I don't know what happened there, but he sent Jason Clare instead. He most probably has heard the warnings that surround him reflected in the polls. The coalition now lead Labor on primary voting intentions. There is more to this than the voice. The electorate is aware of the cost of living crisis. Ask someone try to buy a house. Ask someone try to rent. But the government is deliberately embracing high immigration and record foreign student numbers. So up go house prices and rent, and if you can't afford either, homelessness. Industrial relations changes are favouring the union movement. Bowen and his idiotic climate change net zero nonsense is driving up energy prices, if indeed enough energy is available. 
wind turbines, solar panels, all from China. And China's laughing at us. I've said many times it's government spending that is the biggest factor in the inflation problem. The former RBA board member Warwick McKibben made sense last week after the increase in interest rates on Cup Day when he said, and you've got to take this, he says, to cut inflation, there it is, raise supply through productivity, you can do that, or cut demand through less government spending, or higher taxes, or raise interest rates. At that point, very clear raise supply through productivity. Well, currently in America, there are Republican primaries taking place, though Donald Trump, sensibly, a mile in front, has not taken part. But there is this 38-year-old Vivek Ramaswamy who is absolutely brilliant. I can't get enough of him. Trump should take this bloke as his running mate. He is a graduate of Harvard University, was born in Cincinnati to Indian Hindu immigrant parents, but they were smart. While at high school, I might add, Ramaswamy was a nationally ranked tennis player. His wife is a medical doctor. He had been an investment partner in a hedge fund and co-founded an investment firm, Strive Asset Management. He's a millionaire. Well, one of the questions to each candidate in the Republican primary was, how could you improve the economic well-being of people in the short term? Listen to this sure. brilliant right, and as a answer. CEO, the economic question is core to my vision and policy prescription for this country. Increase the supply of everything. It's the law of supplies and demand. Increase the supply of energy. That brings down the cost of energy, grows the economy. Drill, frack, burn coal, embrace nuclear. Increase the supply of labor in this country. Stop using our taxpayer money to pay people more to stay at home instead of to go to work. Increase the supply of housing. People don't talk about this one in the Republican Party. The land use restrictions are constricting the supply of housing. That's making housing more expensive for ordinary Americans across this country. So that's the true answer. And I think it takes a CEO in the White House who actually understands this to get this done. Because Americans at home, they know the Bidenomics is a lie. Prices are going up. Interest rates and mortgages to buy your home are going up. But wages have remained flat. That's the hard diagnosis for our economy. Well, all of that applies to Australia, doesn't it? That bloke's smart, but he says increase the supply. Now, I've mentioned many, many times, the more bananas on the market, the cheaper the bananas. And that, as Ramaswamy has said, reduces costs and reduces inflation. Now, get your head around the fact that the NDIS is projected to cost taxpayers more than $60 billion by 2030. $60 billion. Overseas migration, net, 563,000. This is under the Albanese government. Net, 563,000. That's 100,000 more than the entire population of the ACT, and that's in one year. Foreign students, well, student visas in September total 650,000. Visas, let them come into the country to study here. 650,000. 10 years ago, it was 340,000. We've gone mad. I mean, Labor has lost its senses. And then, of course, Energy and Bowen. Has Bowen not heard of the World Economic Forum paper released on October 26, which outlines the shelving of several large wind projects in Europe? Now, I've talked about this many times. Again, it is supply. If everyone has gone mad on net zero and they want solar panels and wind turbines, the cost of solar panels and wind turbine goes up. And that's where we are. Then they've got to be shipped here. 
And remember, Bowen wants 22,000, 22,500 watt solar panels every day this year and for the next seven years. You've got to get your head around this. He wants 47 megawatt turbines every month this year and for the next seven years. And then at least 10,000 kilometres of transmission lines. Put simply, Bowen should be sacked. The bloke has gone nuts. Where is the opposition saying this won't work? This next election is winnable on energy alone. The Prime Minister, his party and the government have been brought back to earth. Labor's primary vote is the lowest since the election and it won't get any better. Where is the opposition with a suite of simple policies to address this government's stupidity? Well, oh God, the cancel culture is still alive and well in the Liberal Party. Russell Broadbent has been the Liberal member for the Victorian seat of Monash for 25 years. He, lo he lost his pre-selection on Sunday by 162 votes to 16. The key issue which turned pre-selectors against him, his opposition to COVID-19 vaccine mandates. Of course, he was right, but he's being punished for being right. Well, to sporting matters, Australia's one-day cricket side under Pat Cummings have, Cummins have been playing brilliantly. It is the World Cup. They lost their first two matches. They've won seven in a row. They're now in the semi-final to play South Africa. However, there is a cyclone forming in the Bay of Bengal and forecasts to say that tomorrow night's match, our time, will be washed out as well as the reserve day on Friday. So that means if they couldn't play tomorrow night, they play the next day. But if they can't play on Friday, that means someone has to go to the final. South Africa would go to the final because they are ahead of Australia on the points table. They go straight through to the final. South Africa have never, never reached, never reached a World Cup final. So don't tell me this Australian side playing brilliantly may be wiped out by the weather. Now listen, what about this for a cricket story? The Mudjurabar third grade cricket side, Mudjurabar near the Gold Coast, they were playing Surface Paradise on Saturday. Surface Paradise were chasing 179 runs. They needed five runs to win from the last over. Now, the, for those who know anything about cricket, there are six balls in an over. The Mudjurabar captain, Gareth Morgan, took six wickets in six balls, <laughs> all in the last over, and they won. Service Paradise went from four for 174 to 10, all out for 174. You can't beat that, can you? And what about this Eddie Jones? All this business about not having spoken to Japan about a job. Now he says he's speaking to several countries as he considers his next job. It's to be hoped those countries do more homework on the Eddie Jones coaching record than McLennan did before appointing his coaching messiah for five years. Jones now says, if Japan did come knocking, I would definitely chat to them. There is a club in Europe interested. So I would expect by January, I'll be working again." Unquote. The potential employer must have rocks in his head. You're watching ADH, I'm Alan Jones. Well, the headlines in the TV pictures say it all, though I have to say at the outset, that I am on the side of the British Home Affairs Minister, Suella Braverman, who overnight has been sacked. I'll come to that in a moment. The former Prime Minister, David Cameron, who is not a member of the British Parliament and hasn't been for seven years, has been given a life peerage 
<laughs> which makes him a member of the House of Lords, and the British Prime Minister Sunak has made him Foreign Minister in a Cabinet reshuffle. Very strange indeed, given that Sunak has publicly distanced himself from Cameron conservatism. But that is another story, not for tonight. Suella Braverman has been sacked as the powerful Home Affairs Minister, a massive portfolio, for a piece that she wrote about the pro-Palestinian marches. Suella Braverman was formerly a barrister. Her backstory is interesting. She's the daughter of parents of Indian origin who migrated to Britain in the 1960s. One parent from Mauritius, the other from Kenya. Her mother is of Hindu Tamil Mauritian descent. In other words, as you can see from the pictures in the language of today, she is a coloured person. She wrote a piece for the London Times last week, which has seen her sacked in last night's reshuffle in Britain. But I venture to say that there is widespread support throughout Britain and beyond for the views of Suella Braverman. She made the point that the law as it stands in Britain makes it clear that marches should almost always be permitted. That's the case here. But then she wrote that this permission comes into sharp focus because of what happened on October 7, the worst massacre of Jews since the Nazi era. She then courageously wrote about all that has followed since then, that the pro-Palestinian movement has mobilised tens of thousands of angry demonstrators marching in the streets with, as she wrote, highly offensive content of chants, posters and stickers. Now, the issue, as I've said many times, should not be about Palestine and a Palestinian state. The issue should be about the butchery of Hamas in what has been a pogrom, which is rarely referred to. A pogrom is an organised massacre of a particular ethnic group. This was a pogrom. And yet, as Suella Braverman rightly said, we've seen with our own eyes that terrorists, Hamas, have been what she called valorised, that is, given validity, given cultural value. Terrorists valorised while Israel is demonised as Nazi and Jews threatened with further massacre. Yet these hate marches, as she called them, paraded through our streets on Armistice Day. Judge for yourself. Suella Braverman wrote, and she's been sacked for saying it by the British Prime Minister, and this is what she wrote. I do not believe, she said, that these marches are merely a cry for help for Gaza. She said they are an assertion of primacy for certain groups, particularly militant Islamists of the kind we are more used to seeing, she said, in Northern Ireland, unquote. Well, that's upset people. But she made the point that, quote, she said, some of Saturday's March group organisers have links to terrorist groups, including Hamas. And she asked, how do we as a society police groups such as these? Now, Suella Braverman answered, offered the answer, a very interesting answer. She said, well, the response must be even-handed. But then this, which has caused political meltdown in Britain, cost her a job. You make up your own mind as to whether Suella Braverman is right. She wrote, and I quote, unfortunately, there's a perception that senior police officers play favourites when it comes to protesters. She wrote during COVID, why was it that lockdown objectors were given no corner by public order police, yet Black Lives Matters demonstrators were enabled, allowed to break rules, and even greeted with officers taking the knee, unquote. She went on, quote, right wing 
and nationalist protesters who engage in aggression are rightly, she said, met with a stern response. She said, yet pro-Palestinian mobs display almost identical behaviour and are largely ignored, even when clearly breaking the law. She said, I've spoken to serving and former police officers who have noted this double standard, unquote. She went on, this is the kind of politician, I think, with some guts, Suella Braverman. We need people like this. She's now been sacked for a trouble. But Suella Braverman went on, football fans are even more vocal about the tough way they are policed as compared to politically connected minority groups who are favoured by the left. Well, the marches went ahead. You saw the pictures. It was most probably wishful thinking that Suella Braverman wrote, quote, the public will expect to see an assertive and proactive approach to any displays of hate, breaches of conditions and general disorder. Now, how can any of those comments be controversial? Jewish students are living in fear as a wave of anti-Semitism its universities. Messages like F Israel and dirty Jewish seas. Young people afraid of their physical safety, Jewish people. In Melbourne at the weekend, pro-Palestinian protesters brandished brazenly anti-Semitic placards drawing on Hitler and the Nazi legacy. One placed in Sydney read, Hitler equals Netanyahu, Nazism equals Zionism, Nazis equal IDF, that's the Israeli Defence Force. Another placard had a picture of the Israeli Prime Minister with a moustache declaring Nazi Netanyahu. And an image of an Islamic State terrorist with a knife in his hand about to behead a hostage in Syria was sent to Australia's peak Jewish body with the words, we're coming for you soon, from Western Sydney. New South Wales Police did investigate that incident and at the beginning of this month, a 33-year-old man from the southern Sydney suburb of Wallai Creek was arrested. But this is just one of a nationwide surge in death threats, abuse on the streets and incitement to violence against Jewish Australians right across the country at the weekend. In the New South Wales city of Newcastle, the home of a Jewish rabbi was defaced with graffiti, urging people to, quote, kill the Jews this morning. One placard in Melbourne compared Gaza with the Auschwitz concentration camp, when more than a million Jews were murdered. Another sign said, Gaza equals gas chamber. Well, what should be done? Given that the freedom of protest is essential to the health of democracy, Almost every right we enjoy, as I've said, the right to vote, the right to an eight-hour day, these things came after generations of Australians marched in the streets. But this is not com comparable to those marches. We are witnessing here sickening spectacles, sickening to decent and civilised people. It is not believable that in the wake of the worst slaughter against the Jews since the Holocaust, citizens of Australia, like you and me, have not taken to the streets to stand shoulder to shoulder with the Jewish people, thousands of whom have been savagely butchered, but they're marching in the streets to support the obliteration of the Jewish nation. Suella Braverman made the point that this is not the time for naivety. Terrorists, she said, have been valorised, that is, given certain cultural value and validity, but Israel has been demonised as Nazis, the Jews, threatened with further massacres. Well, Braverman is right. I don't care that she's been sacked. We haven't heard the last of her. Like Jacinda Price in Australia, Braverman shows all the hallmarks of leadership, sacked for her honest observations. This is not a question of banning marches or censoring your enemy. 
the left advocate enough of that? The answer is, if we had a leader, which we don't, the answer is to urge Australians to stay at home. Don't march. You're giving comfort to Hamas around the world and bringing agony and fear to fellow Australians just because they happen to be Jews. Look, I mentioned earlier that the freedom to protest is essential to the health of democracy. Many of the laws, laws we have today and the rights we enjoy, the right to vote, the right to an eight hour working day, they came from people marching in the streets. But those issues have nothing in common with the marches against Israel and the Jews. They are sickening spectacles given that we witnessed on October 7, and this has to be repeated because obviously almost millions have forgotten, the worst act of racist slaughter against the Jews since the Holocaust. Yet many of our people, Australians, like us, you and I, are taking to the streets, not to stand shoulder to shoulder with the Jewish people, but rather to be part of a call, as in the Hamas Charter, for the obliteration of Israel. Tens of thousands of people around the world have attended these marches in step with people backing Hamas, people connected in some way with Hamas. Does this mean we don't care about anti-Semitism? This is not about displaying support for a Palestinian state. That is a separate issue. Israel offered that prospect way back to Yasser Arafat, the chairman of the Palestine Liberation Organisation from 1969 to 2004. Arafat was a terrorist. He spent the majority of his life dedicated to fighting Israel. But as part of the Oslo Accords in 1993, Arafat, as chairman of the PLO, signed two letters renouncing violence and officially recognising Israel. Later, the then Prime Minister Rabin, on behalf of Israel, officially recognised the PLO. The following year, Arafat and Rabin were awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, along with Shimon Peres. But the rejectionist front of the PLO allied itself with militant Islamists in a common opposition against the agreements. They were also rejected by Palestinian refugees in Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, as well as many Palestinian intellectuals and local leadership of the Palestinians' territories. But the inhabitants of those territories generally accepted the agreements and Arafat's promise for peace and economic well-being. In the year 2000, at the Camp David summit, the then Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak offered Arafat in the presence of President Clinton, a Palestinian state in 73% of the West Bank and all of the Gaza Strip. Arafat rejected the offer. And so it went on, and here we are today. But what happened on October 7 was nothing more than a pogrom, an organised massacre of a particular ethnic group. And people demonstrating in the streets apparently are not bothered by this Hamas slaughter, but rather want to reenact the world's oldest hatred. These marches, forget all the fancy talk, are a celebration of anti-Jewish massacres. Hate lurks at the centre of these crowds. I have said at root that there is a word, caliphate, not used by any leader to date, a basic determination that militant Islam rule the world. Israel is merely the current battleground what will be next? Well, this is a challenge, as I've said many times, to Western civilization. Dr. Anne Porat 
is the research associate at the Australia Jewish and Jewish Affairs Council. He's an analyst on Israel and Middle Eastern affairs. His primary areas of expertise are extremism in the Australian Arab Muslim community and the Israeli diaspora in Australia. He is a lecturer and a researcher at Monash University on subjects including the Middle East and Israel, Australian society, immigration, and importantly, social cohesion. Dr. Parat joins me. Thank you for your time. Uh, I, I note that one of your academic pursuits involves social cohesion. What do you make of vandals, for example, targeting a Jewish-run restaurant in Sydney with shocking graffiti and images on the front door of the restaurant were the words child murder and steal our identity alongside images that appear to be of injured and dead children. Talking of social cohesion, you've got the image of an Islamic State terrorist with a knife in his hand about to behead a hostage in Syria. That image was sent to your people, the Australia's peak Jewish body, the Executive Council of Australian Jury and the New South Wales Jewish Board of Deputies via a direct message on Instagram on October 12, less than a week after Hamas terrorists slaughtered 1,200 Israeli citizens in southern Israel. So I just ask you, as a scholar on social cohesion, where is there social cohesion in this? And if none, what is happening to our society? I think, uh, in, a, in a sense, this is a wake-up call. Uh, that that uh, uh, thing on the, on the restaurant, the Israeli restaurant, that, that uh, uh, thing that was written on the Israeli restaurant reminds me, of course, of Kristallnacht, the crystal night uh, where the German, the Nazi Germans, uh, uh, singled out, singled out uh, Jewish uh, institutes, uh, restaurants, and businesses. It's the same idea behind it. Now, as as uh, because I follow Arabic media in Australia and Islamic media in Australia, I can see the origins of that kind of behavior, that kind of antisocial uh, messages that come through uh, preachers in mosques, that come through. Uh, media that even wins, you know, prizes from uh, uh, local uh, um, uh, premiers. Uh, and they continually uh, continue say the same message. The Jews are not acceptable. The Jews are, uh, you know, responsible for everything that is bad in uh, in Australia, everything that is bad in the world. Uh, they uh, and, and they have an audience here. And that audience is actually the Arab uh, diaspora and the elements, extremist elements among the Islamic community. I'm not saying that everybody... No, that's the point. I mean, not all Muslims. We're talking about Middleton. Not all Muslims. That's why I think Muslim leadership should be having something to say about this as well. But just, Dr. Ann, what is the current situation in Israel as you understand it? We're at war. That's not surprising. It's actually a regional war. Uh, uh, Very uh, hard. It's possibly unprecedented in Israel's history. Uh, The challenge is multi-front. Well, it's coming from it's coming from all directions. Um, in Gaza, the the IDF, uh, the Israeli army, is uh, regaining his uh, posture as the fighting force that can be trusted, the uh, most the mighty mightiest force in the Middle East. But it's it comes at, at a very high cost of human lives and uh, a lot of uh, anguish and and anger and pain. But in the north, uh, from Lebanon, Hezbollah is trying to stretch their their uh, muscles harass Israel on an increasing level uh, day by day. And it's becoming clear that uh, there is a, even a, a, a bigger threat from the north uh, by Hezbollah. That I remind the people watching, 
has 150,000 different kind of missiles aimed at every point in Israel. Now, would Australia uh, be uh, able to live with such a threat if such a threat would happen uh, on our shores? I'm sure that the answer is uh, absolutely no, but Israelis have been living like that for uh, decades. And maybe it's the time to, uh, after we address, after Israel addresses the, the threat from Hamas, to uh, find some sort of mechanism to defuse that uh, threat as well. Absolutely. Just uh, uh, quickly, how many hostages do you believe are held captive in uh, Gaza by Hamas operatives? It's not what I believe, it's what the IDF spokesman said, and he's talking about uh, close to 240. Uh, we have to remember that uh, not all of them are held by Hamas, at least uh, a few of them are held by the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and even some uh, uh, family, like mafia kind of families that uh, hold uh, specific uh, hostages in their, in their midst. Uh, and it's going to be a, a huge challenge to extract them or to get them free, mm. despite the fact that there is ongoing negotiation for some kind mm. of deal in the background, but it's very, very is complicated. There a feeling, is there a feeling amongst your people and within the Jewish community that Hamas has sort of valorised, I've used that word, celebrated, and Israel demonised? This seems to be what the marching is about. If you're talking about the protests in Australia, uh, they, they try to sort of uh, circumvent the, the, the issue by not mentioning Hamas, but it's clear that they're, when they're cheering uh, from the river to the sea, or when they say in Arabic, by the way, they speak in Arabic differently when they, well, for what they say in English. In English, they might sound, I wouldn't say moderate, but at least sort of uh, not extreme, but in Arabic, they are, go the, the full uh, extreme. Uh, so uh, they they do support Hamas. If they, you ask them in, in, in private, they will say, yes, of course, it was a legitimate act of uh, what they call Mukawama resistance. Uh, but uh, they just they don't say that to the Australian public. If you're talking about social cohesion, uh, this is a, a, a phenomenon that undermines social cohesion uh, directly. Absolutely. How do you address this Hamas strategy of surrounding its military facilities, its armour and its weapons with civilian structures? Hamas embedded himself into the uh, population, into the civilian population. And by the way, many civilians in Gaza do support Hamas. I have to be clear about that. Not all of them, many of them do not, but many do, either by choice or either because of other reasons. So the IDF is moving very slowly, carefully, uh, also trying to evacuate civilians as they go, opening uh, humanitarian corridors, and the Gazans are fleeing by the uh, hundreds of thousands from the northern part where the IDF is mostly active to the southern part where they receive humanitarian assistance and, uh, and are safe from the battles. But uh, Hamas is, continues to use uh, in, people in hospitals, people in streets as their human shields. They uh, care nothing about uh, civilians uh, mm. in, in Israel or in Gaza. Yes, well, of course, they think, that, they think that Palestinians who die will go to heaven and they don't actually believe that Israeli people exist. How do you avoid these uh, Gazan citizens paying a toll in lost lives and limbs? I wish there was a simple uh, answer for that. And by the way, Hamas believed that it's not only that these people will go to heaven, it's actually a necessity that they must die in the, cost, in the course of uh, what they see as liberation right. of mm. their, yeah. So mm. uh, the ability to avoid that is limited and it's uh, very much uh, everything that can be done is being done. The, actually, the IDF is protecting, protecting these civilians when they flee from the north to the south, uh, from Hamas attacks. Uh, there were, as a case a few days ago, when IDF soldiers had to kill 
uh, Hamas uh, sniper try, trying to shoot at uh, his own people uh, fleeing death. It's a, it's mm. a cult of death. Uh, it as is we say cult in Arabic, of death. See, yeah, only, Hamas, only hours ago before we came on air, just a couple of hours before we come on air, we had a story out of Israel that rocket launchers were being fired on Israeli Defence Force troops and they were being fired from a Gazan hospital. Do you know anything about that? In the vicinity of a Gazan hospital, but uh, also uh, you can find rocket launchers, RPGs, anywhere in schools, inside. You know, there was a school in Gaza where there was a you know regular class, and just next to it there was a lab, a workshop that created, that uh, built drones and RPGs. Uh, this is this is going on on a on a daily basis, on a regular basis. That was happening for years in Gaza. Uh, uh, Hamas doesn't care about children, women, as we've seen in, uh, on October 7th, and we see now during the war. So what is your reaction, therefore, to the Australian Foreign Minister Penny Wong and Emmanuel Macron amongst them calling for a ceasefire? Well, actually, Penny Wong did talk about steps towards a ceasefire, but wouldn't that only allow Hamas to regroup? Israel rejects completely the idea that uh, foreign foreign powers or foreign states, as friendly as they can be, will dictate the timeline for the uh, military operation. Uh, that is, a, uh, that is, Israelis have had enough of uh, that stopwatch that stopped them in the past from completing the mission of actually eliminating the threat that has become the horrendous reality of, on October 7th. Yes, I Putting mean, had, just talking about October 7, uh, Dr. Ram, Ran, hadn't a ceasefire, wasn't there a ceasefire in place on October 6, the day before all this? There's always a ceasefire with Hamas. It's called Hudna, which is uh, the Arabic or Islamic term for a ceasefire, which is the preconditioned. It's not, a, uh, it's not never-ending from the, from the Muslim point of view, and Hamas is an Islamic fundamentalist organization, terror organization. It's uh, conditioned until the uh, Islamic forces are strong enough to hit back at the enemy and destroy them. So that kind of ceasefire was in place mm. and it was uh, grossly... Uh, yeah. uh, betrayed. Uh, yeah, betrayed. betrayed. But, uh, I mean, people watching us, I hope, understand the costs involved in this, just, just to Israel and the Western world. But here in New South Wales, police resources have been stretched to the limit. Nearly 3,500 police shifts have been required to contain these protests. Now, that's costing millions and millions of dollars. Just, uh, Doctor, there are reports that Israeli positions or Israeli tanks have taken up positions at the gates of Al-Shifa, which is Gaza's city's main medical facility, and this remains the primary target in Israel's battle to seize control of the northern half of the Gaza Strip. Now, Israel is saying, are they not, and can this be verified, that the hospital sits on top of tunnels housing headquarters for Hamas fighters using patients as shields? It's 100% verifiable. Uh, we know that Hamas started actually building these uh, tunnels soon after they took over the Strip uh, in 2007 after a bloody coup, when they again murdered their own people to took, take control over the, the Strip. So the Israeli army is moving clo uh, close to the uh, hospital slowly. Uh, he, he, the, the army managed to actually drive out the thousands of uh, Palestinians that were there uh, sheltering, but they're now left the hospital. So uh, the hospital is, is being taken hostage uh, by the Hamas killers uh, that hide uh, underneath uh, the, the, it's not the hub of the tunnels, underneath the 
the hospital. It was deliberately built like that. Right. Now, a Gaza health spokesperson has said in the last 48 hours who allegedly was inside the Al-Shifa hospital that 32 patients have died in the past three days, including three newborn babies as a result of the siege of the hospital and the lack of power. But didn't Israel leave 300 litres of fuel to power emergency generators at the hospital entrance, but the offer was blocked by Hamas? Yes, and I follow uh, Arab social media, and you can see there every two days or every day or two or a few hours, they say we're out of, out of gas, out of electricity, and then uh, you can see that gas and electricity actually uh, do continue to flow into the hospital. Yes, Hamas blocked the supply because they want the supply of gas or of fuel into to their tunnels, to their uh, rockets and missiles. That's why they do it. Are, are there 650 patients still inside the hospital desperate to be evacuated to a mother, another medical facility by the Red Cross or some other neutral agency. That's a lot of people, 650. Can you verify that? I can't verify the exact numbers. Everything that Hamas said has to be taken with, I wouldn't say a grain of salt, no. I would say a bag of salt. Uh, but uh, yes, there are patients there. there are, many of them are injured. Uh, it's not a good situation. It's not a positive situation, but we should not never forget who's responsible for that, and their responsibility is 100% uh, on Hamas that started this uh, bloody conflict. Well, why do you think, I mean, I'm talking about Australia now, but it's worldwide, we have this media focus on Palestinians rather than the state of Palestine, rather than the brutal slaughter of innocent Israelis by Hamas. Do you find there's a, a media bias about all of this? We're constantly reading about the Palestinian cause, but we seem to want to forget the slaughter of innocent Israelis on October 7. Well, media has to sell newspapers, as you say, as you know, media has to sell news, and this is the unfolding drama. Nobody can be uh, oblivious or, uh, you know, uh, insensitive to say that the Gazans are having fun now. It's, it's a huge catastrophe for them as well. It's a huge uh, a human problem for them as well. So that's why the media is reporting about this. But uh, as you correctly note, uh, they forget to note that uh, it's the same. It's the same with Russia and Ukraine, right? Who is responsible for the suffering of the or the death of many Russian soldiers? It's Ukraine. It's uh, Putin's decision to invade Ukraine uh, for for no justifiable reason. So uh, it's the same. It's the same idea. The media has to portray has to create a drama, and uh, sometimes they're obsessed with that drama. It's uh, well, really photogenic. Yes. But uh, well, the reality is much more complex. Well, well, some people might say, oh, well, Dr. Rand would say that. Okay, he would say that. Well, let me just tell you, I last night read a report by a physician, a Muslim physician, a woman, who's a senior fellow at the Independent Women's Forum. Now, members of that forum are some of the world's brightest women. This woman is Dr. Ahmed, A-H-M-E-D. She's a British-American physician. She spent 10 days as a human rights observer with the permission of Israel's Foreign Affairs Ministry. As I said, she's a Muslim, and she said she felt an obligation and a duty to come and bear witness. And she said what she saw will remain with her forever. And she wrote, Hamas raged its attacks in the nation's south but hundreds of its victims have since moved north. She said, I encountered many of them at the morgues 
of the Shura military base some 15 miles southeast of Tel Aviv. She said, this is a Muslim physician, she said, I examined bodies and ashes, incinerated teeth and bones. I saw toddlers, teens and adults, young and old, many of them bound, tortured and burnt alive. She said, one word continually came to mind, genocide. Dr. Pratt, how come these people marching in the streets don't seem to want to understand this? They uh, seem to ignore it and they seem to uh, purposefully uh, try to uh, avoid it because it looks very bad uh, in the mirror because they know that uh, supporting Palestine in this way, I'm not talking about human rights, right? Uh, everybody's got a, a, a right to, uh, you know, self, uh, some freedoms, etc. But if they, uh, the people that march in the streets understand that they're actually uh, supporting uh, Hamas when they call out uh, from the river to the sea, uh, they would have to look at themselves in the mirror. Yeah, and you can don't. see in the... But they don't. they don't want to do that. They don't want to do it. I mean, this Dr. Ahmed is a Muslim physician. And that's why we, we can't necessarily associate Muslims. This is not Islam. This is militant Islam we're talking about. But Dr. Ahmed, the Muslim physician said, quote, the monster is easy to recognise. As a doctor, I had a raw and panoramic view of the aftermath of targeted people's long, agonising journey to death. As I said, we've got to remember this woman's a Muslim. She said, this isn't the first time we've seen Islamist jihadism or even Islamist genocide. She said, I've been to northwestern Pakistan. I've met child Taliban operatives groomed for suicide missions. She said, I still attend to 9-11, first responders in New York. She said, I've spoken with former ISIS child soldiers. And she writes, the October 7 genocide was different more barbaric than anything before it. Now, Doctor, the headlines don't articulate this and nor do the placards in the streets. What's the answer? The Muslim doctor says, the October 7 genocide was different, more barbaric than anything before it. They reveal that Islamism is a virulent imposter of Islam with intentions anathema to the faith. And she said, there's no doubt of Islamism guilt. I saw real time footage generated by the Hamas commando's own GoPro cameras. She writes, I heard phone calls exclaiming the Shahada, the Islamic declaration of faith as they murdered, executed, burnt, pillaged, and then broadcast their crimes. So, Dr. How do you initiate a ceasefire with this lot? First of all, it's not about Islam. This is not Islam. No. Uh, it's about humanity. And yeah. what these animals did is uh, not, it's not humane. It's beyond that. Uh, how do you initiate a ceasefire? Only when the, the mission is completed. And the mission is to eradicate Hamas as a functioning organization. And that will take uh, weeks at least. Can that be done? Are you confident that Israel has the resources to eliminate Hamas? It's actually uh, started happening. So, uh, and the Israeli army is very, very confident and very, very strong and very, very smart. And it's ongoing and it's going to happen. Uh, it's going to take a few weeks, as I said, but it, it will happen. 
the uh, Hamas as an organization is going to cease to be uh, functional, uh, fighting the idea of uh, fundamentalist Islamic uh, extremism is a major challenge for the entire, let's say, Western civilization. Absolutely. It's not just for Israel. You're right. Western civilization. This is civilization versus extermination. And I do think Muslim leaders have got to have something to say. All religious leaders have got to have something to say. Oh, just one final question to you, Dr. Rand. I don't want to get you into the politics of all of this, but uh, during The Voice, for example, we had corporate leaders everywhere and corporate leaders, sporting leaders, charity leaders, religious leaders, everybody arguing about The Voice. You must vote yes for The Voice. And they forked out money and all the rest of it. Why in this existential crisis are these same people silent? I don't have an answer for that because uh, uh, it, it's, I guess, beyond my understanding of, uh, of what, uh, what happens in Australia in this case. But I can tell you that uh, Israel is fighting the PR war. In some cases, it wins. Uh, in some cases, it, it, it is losing. But the morality is uh, on Israel's side, and the, that's the main important thing. Good on you. It's good to talk to you. Thank you for your time. I, I'm sure we'll be talking again. I hope we won't be, but I'm sure this is not going to end immediately. But you're absolutely right. It's a clash between Western civilization and extermination. And remember the, you know, all of these issues associated with militant Islamist behavior, just believe that Israel shouldn't exist. And that's the extermination that they seek. And Israel is seeking to prevent that from happening. And the West must unapologetically join them. Thank you for your time and all the best from many people viewing the program to you and your people. Thank you very much, Al. Not at all. Dr. Ran Porat. I mentioned last week in the interview with the brilliant Rebecca Weisser about my surgeon friend in Israel texting me to say he couldn't describe the butchery of Hamas. His words, and I quote, the mutilation of pregnant women, children and babies. Babies, he said, burnt alive in ovens. The rape of women and children. Necrophilia, which is sexual conduct with dead bodies. And he wrote to me to say that, quote, the second in command of Hamas boasts that they want to do it again and again until every Jew has been slaughtered. And yet, as I said earlier tonight, we have seen the violent, emotional, almost mindless protesting at the weekend. I mentioned earlier that the one word no leader has uttered is the word caliphate. This is what this is about. The rule or reign of militant Islam. I should note that what Hamas is about is a prostitution of the Islamic faith. Muslims should be outspoken against the behaviour of Hamas. Muslims who practise their faith seriously should not be identified with this militant Islamic savagery. Hamas seeks the extermination of Israel. And if that militant Islamic conquest succeeds, well, what might follow? I quoted last week the scholarly Henry Ergas, who commenting on this war in Israel and war it is said, it is a war that's been developing for more than a century between civilization and exterminationist barbarism. He wrote, unless and until that barbarism is comprehensively defeated, this world of ours will know no peace. Well, hopefully there are people in the world who might want to actively assist in a fight back, to educate young people and to preserve Western values. Those ugly pictures that you saw on the television were of protesters marching on Armistice Day on Saturday and then Remembrance Day on Sunday. When we talk about Western values, do we stop to think 
that the fact that any march, a march, could take place on Remembrance Day most probably means that the meaning of Remembrance Day is fading. Do the world wars where so many sacrificed pass out of our memory? Do we forget the spirit of 1919, the year after the war ended, where the whole country fell silent? Or in 1929, when an Englishman wrote to the Sunday Times to complain that, quote, drivers of motor cars have not always stopped their engines at 11 o'clock. If there's a decline in the interest on these notable symbols of the triumph of Western values, then do we turn a blind eye to this decline or do we seek through education to build a greater appreciation amongst our young people? Support for the monarchy, for example, certainly in Britain, has weakened dramatically amongst young people. But many young people in Western society say they would dodge conscription. They wouldn't go to war just because a quote unquote leader that they don't respect said they should. And there are many surveys amongst young people which suggest that democracy itself is unpopular. Who in the world of politics and education is teaching our children where our institutions came from and why we should be grateful for them? How did we get here and where are we going? Well, on the same weekend that saw these often violent and hysterical marches, we learnt that Wall Street and Hollywood billionaires have discussed a plan to spend as much as $50 million on a media campaign to, quote, define Hamas to the American people as a terrorist organisation, unquote. The real estate billionaire Barry Sternlicht launched the campaign in the days after the October 7 attacks in Israel and via email sought $1 million donations each from dozens of the business world's wealthiest people. Pleasingly, the campaign would aim to, quote, distinguish between anti-Semites and the Palestinian situation, unquote. Now, as I've said often, the state of Palestine debate is not relevant to this argument. Hamas is a proscribed terrorist organisation that is forbidden here in America, in the EU and in Britain. And Hamas, as we must keep reminding people, has been guilty of the greatest Jewish massacre since the Holocaust. So as this campaign by billionaires rightly argues, quote, public opinion will surely shift as scenes, real or fabricated by Hamas, of civilian Palestinian suffering will surely erode Israel's current empathy in the world community. They say we must get ahead of the narrative. Well, part of that narrative is for people to understand that the Palestinians in Gaza are also horribly treated by Hamas, who run the place. Palestinians in Gaza, many of them hate Hamas. How could you possibly march in defence of Palestine and allow your presence to be interpreted as support for these Hamas butchers? Well, one of the investors in this campaign has rightly criticised universities for their handling of pro-Palestinian student demonstrations. Michael Bloomberg has donated $44 million to Israel's non-profit emergency medical service. The real estate billionaire Barry Sternlicht, who launched the campaign, said he was trying to raise $50 million and was seeking a matching donation from a large Jewish charity for a media blitz to, quote, define Hamas as not just the enemy of Israel, but of the United States, well, indeed of the world. How refreshing that some corporate figures are opening their mouths and are on the side of truth. Sadly, they're spot on in what they argue that young people are fed on a diet of social media, such that recent polling from the University of Maryland in America and Ipsos found that a groundswell of support 
since the October 7 attacks for Israel isn't shared by younger Americans. That would be true here. Isn't it extraordinary that our big corporate heavyweights got into the ring and stumped up money for a divisive voice campaign? You couldn't shut them up. They were spending shareholders' money without any approval from shareholders. Sporting leaders were just as vocal. But when it comes to this existential threat to Western civilization from militant Islam, not a whimper. Sir Thomas More, the English lawyer and judge, philosopher and statesman, refused to support as Chancellor Henry VIII's divorce from Catherine of Aragon and the King's marriage to Anne Boleyn. In 1535, Sir Thomas More was convicted of treason and beheaded. 400 years later, Sir Thomas More was canonised. The maxim of the law is that silence gives consent. As Sir Thomas More himself once said, quoting Plato, who argued silence gives consent, in one of his more famous utterances, Sir Thomas More argued, quote, if therefore you wish to construe what my silence betokened, you must construe that I consented, not that I denied. Are we entitled to construe that the silence of our corporate leaders as consenting to the barbarism and savagery. And if that's not the case, on this crucial issue about the challenge to Western values, why are they silent? Well, here we go again. Anthony Albanese is giving himself a pat on the back, saying that he's offering a lifeline to Tuvalu citizens threatened by climate change. Note the word threatened. And of course, this is supposed to, quote, enhance Australia's position as a trusted, principled regional power. God, I tell you what, I am sick of all this stuff. We hear that the government of Tuvalu or Tuvalu, or whatever you want to call it, has been asking Australia to resettle citizens since 2001. So last Friday, after we're told months of behind the scenes negotiations, the world's first bilateral agreement on climate mobility Oh, they cop that bilateral agreement on climate mobility. Well, so there we've now got the Australia Tuvalu Tuvalu Fallopilli Union Treaty of the Pacific Islands Forum by Prime Minister Anthony Albanese and the Tuvalu Prime Minister was signed. Now, Tuvalu is a little island nation in the Pacific. It's part of the British Commonwealth. It's got nine islands. It's got a population of 11,000. And we're told that if you listen to the climate change alarmists, it's going to be one of the first countries to be, quote, significantly impacted by rising sea levels due to global climate change. It will be somewhere down the track. Funny that because the latest study by Professor Paul Kench of Auckland University shows that Tuvalu has grown, not shrunk, and is 2.9% larger than it was 40 years ago. And the Bureau of Meteorology shows fewer cyclones over the past 50 years. Now, interest rates are going up because we want to stop people from spending where the spending is the driving force behind inflation. But as I said last week, and I say again now, the biggest spenders are the Commonwealth Government. So at this Pacific Island Forum in the Cook Islands, the Prime Minister became, as Andrew Bolt brilliantly described it today, the great white chief of the latest cargo cult. He's going to give them $350 million for climate schemes. Somewhere else I've spoken about the fact that he's going to support a Papua New Guinea rugby league side. On top of the $2 billion he's promised for climate financing around the world. 
And now Albanese has told the Tuvalu Prime Minister, re his 11,000 people, that all of them will be entitled to permanent residency in Australia. But initially, a special pathway will be created for 280 citizens to come annually. And they'll have permission to study, work and live in Australia. And Australia will provide security assistance to Tuvalu in response to major natural disasters and health pandemics. You just wonder where these stunts are going to end. And how does Prime Minister Albanese justify Tuvaluans as climate refugees when there is no, no catastrophe? Or does this have something to do with a matter before the federal court? A couple of Torres Strait Islanders are suing the Commonwealth Government, claiming it has breached its duty of care to protect them from the impacts of climate change. Nothing yet, but something down the track. They're going to be affected. And the government's defence is unbelievable. The applicants in the case against the federal government present all sorts of information and scientific models, but the federal government's solicitor representing the Albanese government has argued that, quote, the models or projections referred to are estimates or approximations based on, amongst other things, the available information and the scientific understanding at the time. And the assumption as to future GHG, that's greenhouse gas emissions, and removal rates with attendant uncertainty as to which, if any, of the modelled rates and outcomes are most likely to occur." Unquote. Now, precisely, this is precisely what many of us have been arguing from day one estimates and models and assumptions. Let's go to Matt Canavan about all of this, who always makes sense. This is the latest chapter in this climate change hoax. Senator Canavan, thank you for your time. Firstly, the Tuvalu visa issue, because the sea level rises could sink, could sink small islands like <laughs> Tuvalu. But Professor Kench of Auckland University has argued that Tuvalu has grown, not shrunk. And it's bigger than it was 40 years ago. What do you make of this? Well, I don't think you need arguments there, Alan. It's just the simple facts. The satellite images show that the Tuvalu uh, has grown. Uh, it's at no risk of uh, being flooded, uh, of having a whole lot of climate refugees uh, uh, happening anytime soon. Uh, but really, the joke is on all of us uh, because we all know that climate change for many people, climate change is a massive grift. Uh, and good luck to the people of Tuvalu who have got a massive pay payout effectively from this agreement. You can't blame them for wanting to uh, take advantage of the gullibility of our own leaders. But we should be holding our own leaders to account for selling out the interests of this nation uh, based on a an absolute scare campaign. How so does look, it, how if we want to take a couple of hundred people from Tuvalu, yeah. okay, argue for that. But the idea of dressing it up with this sort of climate rubbish is ridiculous. Absolutely. Uh, every other country, of course, is going to be asking for the same. Oh, why aren't you the Prime Minister, Canavan? Now, how does Albanese justify bringing in Tuvaluans as climate refugees when there is no climate catastrophe? Well, well, he doesn't have an argument for it, uh, Alan. It's This is all about uh, Anthony Albanese's political interest because he's obviously trying to buy off green preferences and green votes by wrapping up this uh, pretty plain vanilla bilateral security arrangement with Tuvalu uh, into to climate science. And in fact, it's not just, if it's just Tuvalu, we could probably deal with it. Uh, but all of the, uh, the federal government's uh, foreign diplomatic efforts are being put through uh, this ludicrous climate prism 
right now, our relationship with the United States when we visited Joe Biden. It's all based on climate change agreements now. Well, what happens if and when, and it's looking more like when, uh, Donald Trump comes back as, as president? Uh, how are those sort of agreements going to look like to an incoming president? Why would you uh, put at the centre of our most important diplomatic relationship a political issue in climate change, which is a contentious one? Mm. Uh, this is the problem for us with our leaders at the moment. They seem to think that everybody shares their view on climate change, when clearly the Republican Party in the US does not. Uh, many political parties in Europe uh, do not. And there's a big backlash building there against it. Yet we're tying all our interests uh, into this fad, this climate change fad, which I think will uh, pass, like most fads, very quickly and then will be left with no clothes when that happens. Absolutely. Look, I know you could talk for half an hour because you're very competent in the field of economics as well. I mean, we've got this debate about interest rates and inflation, but they keep on being, we keep on being told by the Reserve Bank that we've got to increase interest rates to stop spending. Now, here is Albanese spending tens of billions of dollars on wind and solar factories and over 10,000 kilometres of transmission wires. When are they going to be accountable for this ridiculous spending? Well, look, even this government is starting to uh, hit up against the hard reality of not having enough money. And over the past couple of weeks, finally, the government has admitted that their spending is contributing to inflationary pressures, and they're talking about cutting infrastructure spending in response. So they've admitted, they've admitted their budget six months ago failed uh, because it did not cut spending and, in fact, increased spending by $20.5 billion. Uh, and now they're saying we've got to cut back infrastructure spending. But the question has got to be asked here, Alan, why are they cutting back productive investments in roads, in dams, the kind of investments that will pay off for our country uh, for many years and decades, which will help us actually pay off uh, the debt we've accumulated post-COVID, post-GFC, that we still have. Uh, but instead, they're cutting, uh, they're, they're, instead of that, we could be cutting these ridiculous investments in green energy, which are doing nothing but pushing up the power price for everybody. They're a negative hit to our productivity, these investments in renewable Absolutely. energy. Let's cut that. If we've got to cut spending, let's cut these subsidies to these wind factories, these solar factories. Uh, they don't make sense. They don't make money. Uh, they just mean you pay more for your power bill. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant analysis. Let's go to these two people from the Tiwi Islands, where the Australian solicitor has virtually admitted... Torres Strait, Torres Strait Islands. Torres Strait Islands, where it's virtually admitted that it's all for nothing. So like the two Valuans, these two, the two Torres Strait Islanders, they're claiming that the government is making them climate refugees and the Torres Strait Islanders want the Albanese government to slash our emissions even further. But the government solicitor has admitted that, well, cutting our greenhouse emissions won't actually make much difference because, <laughs> because we're too small. Oh, look, this is absurd. It's funny, but it's not funny, is it? Well, well, I suppose I'll give a few more marks to the, the government in this case that they're being honest. They're being honest uh, through their statement of defence to the court. It's just unfortunate they've hidden this in a arcane legal arguments to the federal court. You've got to dig deep into the federal court website to find uh, this claim. It's not something you've heard. I've heard from the lips of Anthony Albanese, the Prime Minister. It's just a shame he's not being level with the Australian people about this issue. But his lawyers are. They're obviously working on instruction from his client, from their client, the Commonwealth. And, and they're saying that, look, uh, there's nothing Australia can do to help. Like, that's what we've been saying the whole time. And they've confirmed that in legal documents uh, that if they're not, if they're lying here, it's a, they'll be perjuring the court. 
So they're obviously, when, they, when they've had to swear an oath and put their hand on the Bible here, they've had to reveal the truth that there's nothing Australia can do to affect this, to help the people of Torres Strait, if you, even if you accept uh, the climate science as it is. Yes. What's very useful in this documentation, Alan, is that they've actually quantified this, the first time I've seen in official Australian government uh, communications. They've said that even if you were to cut carbon emissions by 1,000 gigatons, you'd only have a 0.45 degree Celsius impact on the climate. Now, I don't necessarily accept all the science behind that calculation, but let's take them at their word. Let's take those figures. Let's use their own figures. Uh, Australia only emits 0.5 uh, of, a, uh, of, of a million, of a, of a gigaton each year, 0.4, sorry, 0.4 gigaton a year. It would take us 2,500 years. We'd have to shut down Australia for two and a half millennia to get a 0.45 reduction in Celsius in the temperature. Uh, I mean, this shows how absurd this whole mm-hmm. endeavour is. Yeah. While India today announced that it's increasing coal production by 60%, uh, China is building two coal-fired power stations a week this year, and little old Australia, we keep seem to be operating on the presumption that we can change the temperature of the globe. Extraordinary, isn't it? Extraordinary. I mean, the government's solicitor, I'm quoting exactly from the document, says in the federal court that Australia, quote, lacks the necessary control to prevent or materially mitigate climate change and its impact. That's what it says. The solicitor for the government asked the applicants to identify which reports of the IPCC, WMO, UNEP, CSIRO, BOM, CCA, and which particular other, quote, peer-reviewed scientific literature, unquote, was said to constitute the best available science and at what points in time. Matt, we're constantly being told the science is settled. Well, well, even if you do accept it's settled, and, and I don't accept that. I, no. I, I think there's a there's a lot wrong in in the conventional sciences where there are a lot more uncertainty than we're uh, actually uh, told. If you read into the science here, there's actually a lot of unanswered questions in climate science. It's nowhere near settled. But even if you were to accept them again, if you accept them on their own arguments and say, look, okay, <laughs> you're saying that this is that these these calculations are linear, this much cut reduction in carbon emissions leads to this change in the temperature of the globe. Uh, even on their own arguments, it's totally absurd that Australia would be out on its own here doing this. Keep in mind, we were one of only two countries in the world that met our Kyoto targets. They came due in 2020. Uh, all the European countries, America, all these countries did not meet their Kyoto targets. Uh, we did. And it comes back to this point that how gullible we are, our leaders have been so naive and gullible and sold this nation down the river uh, by actually acting on what they say, uh, what they sign up to uh, in these climate agreements, while every other country in the world gets away with blue murder. They don't do as they say. Uh, even in Europe, they're reopening coal-fired power stations right now. America, even under the Biden administration, they are doubling their LNG capacity over the next decade. Their gas export capacity is doubling. And while we're doing nothing, my, my last hope was here that we might get to host the the COP conference, the climate conference next year, because UAE is hosting it this year, uh, UAE, and they're investing $150 billion in gas and they're hosting the conference. So my hope was if we got the conference next year, we might get $150 billion in gas investments too, but unfortunately that looks off the table too. Uh, no. By the way, before we go, who's paying for all of this? 
I mean, we're paying for this damn court case. I mean, I'm ploughing through pages of this stuff here, but on page 20 of the government solicitor's response, that's in the federal court, the government admits that, quote, the Torres Strait Islanders have been affected by some impacts of climate change, including warmer days, ocean acidification, increase in ocean temperature and sea level rises, but, but doesn't know and cannot admit whether, and if so, the extent to which existing global sea level rises have contributed to an increase in the extent or frequency of inundation events and or coastal erosion. Now, Matt, the government solicitor says they don't know and can't admit whether sea level rises are contributing to inundation or coastal erosion, but there's this bloke, Albanese, giving visas to Tuvalu yeah. residents because of inundation, but their own solicitor says, well, we don't know whether or not warmer days, increases in ocean temperatures, quote, have contributed to the extent or frequency of inundation. I mean, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing. Well, I've just got to thank the uh, the Australian government solicitor here for being <laughs> yes. truthful to yes. what the science actually says. And that's what it does say. So if you go and read the detail of the IPCC reports, there's a huge amount of uncertainty. You've unfortunately got to go into the detail in the summary for policymakers. They hide all this, but they hide all this uncertainty about the impacts of uh, climate change on tropical cyclones, on bushfires, on flooding events, all of these things. Yet we're told constantly that we can somehow uh, control not just the temperature of the globe, but bushfires. We're constantly suggested, because suggested, yes. implied by yes. our leaders, that by cutting our own carbon emissions here in Australia, we will avoid bushfires in the future. Uh, it's just totally absurd. It's unbelievable that people are falling for this. But I mean, you, it continues to be the points of the government that do not line up with any credible science whatsoever. No, no, uh, no. And so we've got to be thankful that this is now on the public record. Yeah, well, I mean, there's the solicitor. Hidden, so we've got to expose this as you were doing on your show. Yeah, I mean, there's the solicitor saying that, you've got to say this slowly, his exact words, this is a solicitor for the federal government, they're defending themselves, they're saying, we don't want to play these Torres Strait Islands or anything, we're not responsible. The solicitor says, quote, the respondent, that's the government, does not know and cannot admit whether, and if so, the extent to which the current warming has any effect on human health. That's the solicitor? Yeah. That's yeah, the it's pretty, solicitor? It's black and white. It's black and white. Black and white. And, and um, yeah, but uh, this comes back to this fact that you, you, in a court of law, you could perjure yourself if you say the wrong thing. Yes. Uh, in the political uh, court of opinion, you can tell as many lies as you like and there's no ramifications. And we're being lied to constantly by our political leaders and, yeah, you know, I, I think the big one of the bigger issues here with the whole climate debate is eventually these lies will catch up uh, with people. Unfortunately, most of the political leaders telling these lies will be long gone from political life when they uh, come to fruition. But we're telling everybody we can meet net zero by 2050, for example. There's no way we can do that. Physically, it will not happen. Eventually, that will become very clear. And eventually, it will become clear to the Australian people that they have been lied to by almost all of their political leaders uh, over the past few years. And what is that going to do to public trust? And I ask my colleagues here sometimes in politics, think about that. Think about how angry people are with their political institutions today because they've been lied to about wars, uh, uh, about financial uh, circumstances, and they find out that we've been lied to again on something as big, as scandalous as this. Uh, you know, I worry what it means for our whole society. And we've just got to top, st st stop telling lies. Stop lying to people. Be truthful. Take a leaf out of the Australian government solicitor's book. And the Australian people can cop it. They can. They will deal with. They will be help, They will be thank you for it. In my view, if you're authentic and genuine, and tell people the truth, that's what mm. we've got to do. But this has been just before we go. You and I are talking here tonight. This has been on the public record for some time. 
There's not a word about this in the federal parliament, not a word about this in the media. It's not a front page story. What is this ignorance or a cover up? Now, Alan, I've got I've going to have to go in the next minute or two. Sorry, okay. the bells I'll are, let you are rung here bells in Canberra, but I, I, I was I, I will be raising this in the parliament. I will be I I decided to give it to you, good sir, first, and let you expose it uh, because, as what did Ronald Reagan say once? He was going to say something at a press conference, but he actually wanted to get reported, so he leaked it instead. <laughs> 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 and, and so I've, I've leaked it if you like. It was sort of out there hidden, okay. but I've leaked it to you, and you you're off. doing your job, and I'll go do my job. You go and do your job and, now, uh, and and keep pushing this barrel. Yeah, absolutely. You go and do your Thanks, job. Alan. We're very grateful for your time. There he is. How smart's that bloke? Senator Matt Canavan, that's the bloke who should be leading the government, not just, not even leading his party. But, you know, this is what this document says. I'll cover a bit more of that because there's a few other things I want to raise with you, but I'll leave it for now. But basically it says there is a lack of precise quantitative studies. I mean, you've got to say this slowly. The solicitor says, okay, look, we're not responsible for any of this. You're complaining about climate change and the impact on your lives. Well, the solicitor saying, well, hang on, there's a lack of precise quantitative studies of projected impacts of sea level rises at global temperature increases of 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees centigrade. In other words, even at 1.5 and 2 degrees, we don't have any evidence that that's going to affect anybody. There is a lack of precise quantitative studies. Okay, I'll come back to this because this is, Matt Canavan got it right. So we're lied to on coronavirus, weren't we? We're lied to about the economy. We're lied to here on this. We're lied to about energy. Government telling lies and get away with it. But of course the solicitor here can't lie in the federal court. He will be regarded as guilty of perjuring himself. Mm. There we are, I'll come back to the issue. Well, before we go, it is clear that the Albanese government is in a disarray of its own making. It's hard to say who the most dangerous one amongst them is, but you can't go past this fellow, Chris Bowen. He just turns people off. He cost Bill Shorten the Prime Ministership with a ridiculous tax policy, remember? Then he said, oh, if you don't like it, don't vote for me. Well, they didn't. Shorten lost the unlosable election, or Bowen did. And then The Voice. There was Bowen salivating and waving his finger in the parliament in support of the yes vote. And what happened in his own electorate? 34% voted yes. 66% voted no. Credibility, zero. This is the bloke who's shutting down coal mines, leaving gas in the ground and prospering the farcical notion that we can survive with renewable energy. We know the cost of this. There, look at the bloke. Oh, he's pointing at them. Oh, he knows everything. Knows everything, eh? We know the cost of this if business is ground to a halt, if the commercial world is left stranded, or if cars start running into one another in major cities at eight o'clock at night because the traffic lights have gone out. But there is another cost. Consider this. New South Wales now employs 25,170 coal miners. 25,170. We learn today New South Wales is set to eclipse Queensland as Australia's coal mining powerhouse. Beijing has removed its export bans. They need our coal to build solar panels and wind turbines, which we then import from them. Stop shaking your heads. But New South Wales has shipped $3.3 billion worth of coal to China in eight months. And Bowen wants to shut down coal mines. New South Wales miners exported 21 million tonnes of coal to China between January and August, 
and they lifted exports to Japan, South Korea, Taiwan and India during the Chinese ban, such that the workforce in the New South Wales coal industry is more than double what it was in 1998. In the Hunter region alone, 15,100 jobs. And reports this week say that New South Wales miners are pushing to fast-track 15 coal projects, mainly seeking to extend existing operations. But that represents $3.7 billion in investment opportunities for the regions. But you've got the Greens, Bowen and the climate activists saying, get rid of coal at a time when more than ever, coal mining has become increasingly critical to regional communities and the state economy. Now, of course, state Labor or the Labor governments know a golden egg when they see one. So the New South Wales government has increased the coal royalties. And in Queensland, coal producers will pay an extra $6.5 billion over two years in royalties under the Palaszczuk government's royalty regime, brand new regime, brand new regime. So I wonder if Bowen could answer two questions. The first, when you ban coal and gas and shut down coal mines, where is the revenue they generate then going to come from? Second question, if banning coal and gas is not economic vandalism, how would you describe it, Mr Bowen? This is the bloke who cost Bill Shorten the Prime Ministership. Bowen will now cost Albanese re-election, though I must add Albo is doing a pretty good job himself in relation to that. Well, that's it from me tonight. Thank you for being with us. You can hear all of tonight's program on the podcast app at 6am tomorrow. Just search ADH TV and I'm there. I'll see you tomorrow night at 8 o'clock. You are watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.